So please turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 4. Uh, you can, of course, find the passage for today's uh, sermon in your bulletins or on page 809 of those blue Bibles in front of you, if you are inclined towards those. Uh, to this point, in Matthew's Gospel, uh, particularly in the last chapter and moving now into this section, we've seen the ministry of John the Baptist. It's a ministry of preparation for the one who is to come. And then we saw, of course, Jesus come and be baptized by John the Baptist. And then immediately after that, the first part of chapter 4, the Spirit of God leads Jesus out into the wilderness for this time of testing, the time of temptation by the evil one. And with that, if you will, preparation complete, Matthew now leads us into the ministry of Jesus himself with this passage that is before us today, which is something of an introductory summary of the ministry of Christ. So what comes after this, for example, uh, the Sermon on the Mount coming after it, and then other interactions uh, that take place in it, is actually stuff that fits into this overall summary that we're looking at today, or right now, the passage that is set before us. It fits into this frame. So the stage is being set for us for that which is to come, the Sermon on the Mount that will begin next week. Now, here, this portion of God's inspired, infallible, and his life-giving word today. I'll begin at verse 12, and I'll just continue through the end of the chapter. Now when he, that is Jesus, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. 
Jesus, you are our Lord and our Savior, and we thank you for your life. We thank you for coming to this earth, for preaching, for demonstrating, for living, for being the good news of the gospel for us. We thank you for this glorious beginning that we read about in the text before us. Be with us today. Illumine it for us and for our lives and hearts today. We ask in your name. Amen. John was arrested. Matthew doesn't take the time right now in this passage to tell us why John was arrested. That will come a little bit later in his gospel. But when he tells us the reason that John was arrested, it was because John was a man who was preaching the truth. And sometimes when you preach the truth, it gets you into trouble. And it got John into trouble with Herod the ruler. So John, who had been so much the focus for us in chapter 3, John, who is the herald, John, who is the preparer, John, the one to whom so many had come out to be baptized by him, to hear what he was preaching, so many from Judea and from Jerusalem had come to him, even leaders had come out to see what was taking place there in the wilderness, and of course, even our Lord comes to John, John was arrested. He is forcibly removed from the scene. And there is a darkness in that. This, this passage kind of begins with a darkness of the arrest of John. But the way, the metaphor that I want to use for us today to help us think through this and understand the passage is that what has taken place here is that the stage is set. John has prepared the stage, and the stage, with John being removed from it, the stage is now clear, and the stage is dark. And so, what, what Matthew is doing here is he's showing to us that John's arrest is something of a cue. It's a cue. Uh, do you remember the movie The Truman Show? Do people still watch the Truman Show? Young people, do you still watch the Truman Show? Okay, you know what that is. Remember the scene at the end of the Truman Show, and this I, I won't give the spoiler here for the Truman Show, but you remember at the end of the Truman Show when Truman is off on his grand uh, adventure, and it's darkness, right? It's the middle of the night, and they, they, they can't find him. And so the character that's played by Ed Harris, the one who is the producer of the Truman Show, Ed Harris's character says this, Cue the sun. Cue the sun, right? Because what, what it, they want to find him. It's, it's dark, they can't find him, all the people are... Cue the sun. That's how I want us to think about this passage today. Cue the sun. Cue the dawn. Cue the dawn's early light, which is what I ended up calling it this morning. The, the dawn's early light. That's what we're, we're given here. Verse 16, right? The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, light has dawned. The last words of uh, the call to worship this morning are sweet words to me. I trust that they have been sweet words for countless saints over the millennia as they have read those words weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. 
Weeping might tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. It had been a long, long, long night. Not just for Zebulun and Naphtali, not just for that region. It had been a long, long, long night for the world. And when it's dark, Jesus moves from Judea, from that area, in the south, to Galilee. To this region around Galilee, to the Galilean Sea, or the, the, the lake, uh, or to Lake Galilee. Now, just by way of quick reminder here, you can find this in the back of your Bibles as well, but quick map. If this is the Mediterranean Sea, and this is Israel, okay, so this is Israel right here. You've got the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea here, you've got the Jordan River, and then you've got the Sea of Galilee right up here, okay? Um, and then Jerusalem is kind of right by the tip of uh, the, uh, uh, the, the Salt Sea, uh, or the Dead Sea, kind of in, uh, in the western direction of it. So Jesus moves up into this region of Galilee. And that's what we've read right here. Scholars kind of debate what's being said here. Is this a retreat by Jesus because of the arrest of John? Is it a strategic withdrawal? It, is, is it a, a reprioritizing or a refocusing of his ministry in light of what has just taken place? Or does it simply coincide with the arrest of John? It just happens to be that Jesus moved to that area when John was arrested. Here's, I'm comfortable with simply viewing it as the cue. It's the cue. In the darkness of John's arrest, let me borrow language from later in the New Testament. In the darkness of John's arrest, when, when he, the greatest and last, if you will, of the great Old Testament prophets, when he is moved off the stage, the old has gone and behold, the new has come. The, the old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And this is the moment. This is the, this is the kind of transition point for that taking place in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus comes onto the stage, and John goes off of the stage. And we can't help but think of the words from John's Gospel that John the Baptist himself said with respect to himself and with respect to Jesus, right? That he must increase and I must decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. I must move away. I must be taken out of the picture, if you will, so that the one who is the actual light can shine in the world. Jesus comes onto the stage. He is good news embodied. He is good news that he is proclaiming. He is good news that he is demonstrating. It is the year of the Lord's favor. Right? I, I, that's the passage from Isaiah that I put on the front of the bulletin that Jesus in the Gospel of Luke quotes in Nazareth. This is the year of the Lord's favor, and that's then what is being shown to us here in Matthew. Look at the Lord's favor that is at work in this area. Now Matthew's summary gives us a couple of angles at which we can kind of look at this and consider it. And if you're looking at your own Bibles, you probably have headers in them just like I have uh, in mine, which are kind of helpful headers for us here. So the angles that Matthew gives us are first of all on the location. Where did this ministry, this good news begin? And then on the personal nature of the good news that we have in the calling of these first disciples. And then in the breadth of the good news because it goes out to all of these surrounding places 
as it's proclaimed. But you can also think of it with respect to the kingdom, which is appropriate because of the, particularly the Isaiah references that are here, that you have where the kingdom starts, where the base of the kingdom is, the first officers of the kingdom in the calling of the disciples who will become the apostles, and then the, the, the mission of the kingdom and the, the impact of the kingdom in the final section of it. This is a picture of our king establishing his kingdom. He is the prophet who is declaring his word. He is the priest who is cleansing the people. He is the shepherd who is gathering up his flock, gathering up his sheep here. He is the teacher. He's the teacher who's calling the disciples to follow him and who is teaching them. So I just want to follow as Matthew leads us here to kind of allow him to guide us in these three sections as we consider the kingdom being established here in Matthew chapter 4. So this first section we've got, we've got the location, right? The location is described for us particularly in verses 12 through 16. And location is important for Matthew. It is important for the Lord, and Matthew recognizes it, as, recognizes it as well. The location of where Jesus begins his ministry is not random. It's not an accident. He didn't just happen to go up to Galilee and start his ministry there. Already in the Gospel, we have seen how Matthew has guided us to show us what the Lord is doing in these various locations. So, Think for here now for of the life of Jesus. Why is he born in Bethlehem? Well, Matthew says it's because the Christ is to be born in Bethlehem. The one who is the anointed one, the king, is to be born in Bethlehem. So it fulfills what was stated or what was prophesied in uh, the book of Micah. And then, why did he go down into Egypt? Why was, he, why was the family chased out of Bethlehem or have to flee Bethlehem and go down into Egypt? Why? Because the scriptures say, out of Egypt I called my son. Why do they return and end up in Nazareth? Well, again, uh, Matthew quotes scripture to say he has to be from Nazareth so that he can be called a Nazarene. Why is John the Baptist in the wilderness? John the Baptist is in the wilderness because Isaiah chapter 40 says the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And so John the Baptist calls for him in the wilderness. So a natural question would be, why doesn't the anointed messianic coming king of Israel, why doesn't the son of David begin his ministry and base his ministry in the city of David, in the, the, the holy city of Jerusalem? And Matthew, that, that question would kind of be out there. And Matthew answers the question in exactly the same way that he's answered every other location question because of Scripture, right? Verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Why is he in these places? Because it's according to the word of God, because Jesus is fulfilling all of the words of Scripture. He is there that Isaiah 9, that Nick read for us earlier, might be fulfilled. So not only is the place given to us, that's significant uh, in and of itself, but the reason for the place is also explained to us. Why is Jesus in Galilee? Why is Jesus in Capernaum? Well, in, on, on the one hand, we can say it's because there are two ancient tribes 
the tribes of Zebulun and the tribes of Naphtali of Israel that were there. But they were part of the northern kingdom. They were part of the northern kingdom that had been judged, that had been condemned by God for their unfaithfulness, that had been conquered and destroyed by the invading Assyrian army 700 years before this takes place, before Jesus comes into this place. And so the entirety of this region is kind of looked down upon. If you're somebody from the south, if you're somebody from uh, Jerusalem who says, listen, you were the whole area that was judged and not even recovered after the judgment. And, and you're on the other side of Samaria and you're far away from the leadership, from all the activity of the, of the faithful that goes on in Jerusalem. And you're a mixed bag. You're kind of Galilee of the Gentiles and there's Jews who are living up there as well and maybe you Jewish people have been over-influenced by the fact that you're living with so many Greeks, with so many Gentiles. And so they're looked down upon. They're kind of despised Galileans that are up in that area. So some would argue that's why the Christ shouldn't come from this particular place or shouldn't minister in this particular place. But according to God's plan, according to Isaiah's prophecy and Matthew's clarity, those reasons are in fact the exact reason why Jesus should be there. They're not the reasons why he shouldn't be there, they're the reasons why he should be there. He's going to a place that has experienced the judgment of God. He's going to Galilee of the Gentiles. And that in and of itself says something significant. Of course, when, when Jesus is there, his primary ministry over the next chapters is going to be to those who are Jewish, but not exclusively. And Matthew's going to even here anticipate the fact that the ministry of the king, right, it goes out to the uttermost parts of the earth by the time we reach to the end of Matthew. And he goes to this place because they are the people dwelling in darkness. They are the people dwelling in the shadow of death. It is to these people that Jesus comes to entrust himself. He goes there not because it's light. He goes there because it's dark. That's the exact reason he goes into that place. He entrusts himself then to them and he brings a message to them that sounds in summary form just like John's message, right? Uh, uh, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the summary of John's message. That's the summary of Jesus' message that is given to us here. But think about this. Think about the difference in the ministry of John and the ministry of Jesus and those exact same words that are said. I, I would just suggest to us that when those words are spoken by John, they're thundering, they're lightning, they're expecting judgment. The sword is poised, it is ready to destroy you. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Whereas when Jesus says them, and this is not to contradict one another, these are both true, it's just a matter of emphasis. When Jesus says them, instead of anticipation, it is inauguration, right? Jesus is saying this. He is the king who is standing in front of them. And everything surrounding those words is good news. All of it is good. All of it is bright. So Jesus saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is to say, come. Come to me. 
Come to me, the one who is bringing this gospel of good news to you, as others have said then about the location. The location of the ministry of Jesus as he begins is not an accident. Instead, it confirms the intent for which Jesus came into the world. Namely, and there are any number of places that we could quote, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's why he went there. That's why he's in this particular place, because he came to call sinners to repent. Now this next section then, that's the location. This next section of that is calling the disciples in verses 18 through 22. Matthew tells us of the calling of Peter and of Andrew, of James and of John. To follow Jesus, to be disciples. We're shown that the ministry of Jesus is not only a general call for people to repent, and it's not only for the crowds to hear, right? That's what we've got sandwiching this particular section here. You've got verse 17, this call that goes out to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then as soon as we get down to the 23, the section that follows, we've got crowds that are there. But in between that, what we've got is a recognition that it's not just a general call that goes out, but it's a call that has to be received by each person who hears it personally. So right now, the Word of God is being preached. The call of God is going forth. And what do we got, 100-ish people in the, the sanctuary right now? 100-ish people are hearing this, but what each of us is responsible for is our response to the call. Each of us has to hear this, not just as something that's said to a crowd, and you know, you, you listen to things or you don't listen to things that come to a crowd. Each of us has to hear the voice of God calling us into this life of following after Jesus. We don't need to presume that this was the first conversation that ever took place between Jesus and these men. John, the Gospel of John, would seem to indicate that it is otherwise. But still, in the call itself that is here, there is a need. There is a need to change directions, to leave something behind to turn away for Peter and Andrew from the activity of fishing at that moment and for James and John to turn away from the mending of their nets, to turn away even from their father and to turn to Jesus himself. Even in this early example that we have of this call, and it'll be expanded for us and amplified for us in the rest of Matthew, the call is to treasure him above all else. So Matthew is giving us here an early, a particular example of this, of what will become, of course, a worldwide mission. To these four men, to the other seven at this point, Jesus will give a mission. And through them, he'll give it to the church of which they are the foundation the mission to go into all the nations, to fish for men of all of the nations, and for all of us to be disciples of Christ, to be fishers of men throughout the uttermost parts of the earth. So Jesus, the one who is gathering for his kingdom, is gathering gatherers. He's gathering gatherers right here. 
Now there's a unique apostolic foundational role that belongs to them, but they also serve for us as models of the call for discipleship that extends to us as well. And then we've got this last section that is here, this last vantage point, as Matthew, in summary, shows us the breadth of Jesus' ministry. Right? We, we've got it. the fame spreading up into Syria, the crowds follow from Galilee, from the Decapolis, the ten cities, even from Jerusalem, Judea, and far beyond, and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus is an itinerant preacher. And so he's going around and he teaches in their synagogues. He proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. He heals every one of their diseases and their afflictions. I think we can see clearly that this is the kingdom coming. It is Jesus doing his great work. Now, when Matthew quoted from Isaiah chapter 9, uh, he quoted from the first two verses of Isaiah chapter 9. But let's read the third verse, okay? On those who are dwelling in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shown. That's the end of verse 2. We read this earlier. You have multiplied the nation. That's what's going on here. The great crowds that are following Jesus. You've multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. In case you missed the theme of that, verse 3, increase joy. They rejoice with joy at the harvest. They're glad when they, describe when they divide the spoil that is there. A harvest of joy is being gathered by Christ. That's what's happening here. That's what Matthew is describing for us. The king is out doing his work, harvesting joy and gathering his people together. Now, he doesn't do that without opposition. 1 John 3.8 tells us this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8 The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And I think what Matthew is doing in this summary, he wants us to see clearly that that is what is taking place. Something dark and evil is being destroyed and something light and very good is being established in its place. Later in Matthew... And I say later in Matthew, but it would be during the time of this summary. The religious leaders are going to challenge Jesus, right? He's casting out demons, as it says for us here. And they're going to challenge him. How is it? Who gives you the authority to cast out demons? And the things that they say are like, well, you probably just have authority from a, a higher demon, a more powerful demon. A more powerful demon is giving you authority to cast out less powerful demons demons. Jesus responds to this. And when he responds to it, he says this, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If that's what you're looking at, if you're looking at these paralytics being healed, these epileptics being healed, these all diseases being healed, and these demons being cast out, is because the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is preaching the kingdom and he's bringing the kingdom in their midst. The passage uh, the, that I'm referring to in, in Matthew 12 continues this way. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Or, this is Jesus still, 
how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. What is happening here is that. Matthew is showing us that Jesus has bound the strong man. When did he bind the strong man? Well, I would, I would suggest to us that the very structure of this chapter where Jesus resists the temptations of Satan is that initial binding of Satan by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what follows, what we've got here in this great news that is in this chapter is the plundering of the strong man's house by the one man who is stronger than the strong man. By the Lord Jesus Christ who now comes into the house and says, no, 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 I'll take that spoil, thank you very much. And instead of the harvest of gloom and of the shadow of death and of darkness, I'm bringing a new harvest out of this. I'm taking this and bringing to it light and joy and life. And that's the plundering that he does. And he says, okay, now gather with me. Gather with me. Join with me in that. Jesus is providing not only for the kingdom at the moment, but in the calling of these four in particular, he's saying, I'm providing that for the generations to come as well. Alright, let's, let's bring this home with this. Are you familiar with those nights when worries and fears and anxieties have kept you from sleeping? Are you familiar with that? I'm very familiar with that. I wish I could tell you as a pastor I don't get that all, at, at all. Yeah, I'm, I'm very familiar with that. And then the dawn arrives and the perspective on it changes. And the sky is unspeakably beautiful. That is what Matthew is describing for us here. This king and the good news of his kingdom is life and light to a gloomy, dark world. It's comprehensive and it is wonderful. Now neither Matthew nor our Lord and certainly then not Christianity. We don't deny the darkness of this world. But what we do is we live in and we proclaim that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That's the good news of this passage. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Matthew's invitation, by implication here, is to listen to Jesus. To repent. To, to, to follow him. To, to walk out of the darkness, come into the light, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's whetting our appetites for the details of doing that, which we'll look at beginning next week with the Sermon on the Mount. Great God and Heavenly Father, you are good and gracious. Your kingdom is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Lord, help us to believe that. Help us to walk in that in the midst of this world where we feel and experience so much darkness. Help us to believe the good news of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.